We are here to worship, and our worship will be governed by the holy word of God. So today we will be in mostly John chapter 3, if you want to turn there. But uh, I'm going to back it up into John 2, a few verses. I'm going to start back in 2.23. It says, while he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name when they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all and because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. There was a man from the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to him at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. How can anyone be born when he is old? Nicodemus asked him. Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of the flesh is flesh, and whatever is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I told you that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, but you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. How can these things be? asked Nicodemus. Are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? Jesus replied. Truly I tell you, we speak what we know, and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you about heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. For God loved the world in this way. He gave his one and only Son, so that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned, because he has not believed in the name of the one and only Son of God. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than the light, because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it, so that his deeds may not be exposed. But anyone who lives by the truth comes to the light, so that his works may be shown to be accomplished by God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, brother. Uh, Take a trip with me down memory lane. Think back, if you can, to the first time you encountered Jesus. How did you come to him? What were the circumstances that surrounded you coming to Jesus? Were you at a church camp? Were you at a church? Were you alone? Were you at a coffee shop? Were you reading? Maybe you had a vision, a dream about Jesus. Maybe somebody was preaching to you, or maybe you were having a personal conversation. How did you come to Jesus? What was your attitude as you approached Jesus for the first time? Some of us probably 
came to Jesus in shame, feeling regret for something that we knew we did and we got caught doing and everyone knew as well. And the overwhelming feeling of guilt that washed over us was made worse by all those who ostracized us. We felt alone. We thought maybe there was something different about this Jesus that could help this shame, that could help this guilt. Maybe some of us came to Jesus for the first time in desperation. You had a very real, tangible need that you tried everything else, but there was nothing that seemed to work. And so you thought, maybe, maybe Jesus can help me. Maybe you came to Jesus feeling unloved. You grew up in a broken home. You didn't hear words like, I love you, I'm proud of you, I'm thankful for you. You knew people around you didn't care about you, so you just assumed maybe God didn't care about you either. And if he did care about you, or if he had thoughts about you, they weren't affectionate, kind thoughts towards you, because if they were, then your life would probably be better. But you were alone, unloved. And from what you'd heard, and maybe even somewhere seen Jesus doing things, maybe something was different with him. Maybe some of us came to Jesus for the first time in pride or arrogance, thinking that we didn't need whatever it was Jesus was trying to offer. Well, we had a good family. We had a good background. We were pretty successful in our life. We really had no need for whatever it was that Jesus seemed to be offering to people. Others of you, maybe you still sit here. Maybe it's today. and The first time you're encountering Jesus is here at this church. and The verdict is still out. Sure, you have opinions about Jesus, you have thoughts about Jesus, you believe certain things about this Jesus, but you're just not sure what to do with him quite yet. You're aware of what people say about him, but you're not sure if you're going to keep going and believing what Jesus says on your terms or on his. I have some news, you're actually not the first person to be in that boat, if that's something that describes you. One of our main characters from today is a guy by the name of Nicodemus. I want to ask this question. How did Nicodemus approach Jesus? We can all hopefully remember at some level how we approach Jesus. But I think there's some things to be learned by how Nicodemus approached Jesus. And the reason we read the, first, the last couple of verses from chapter 2 is because I think they actually give insight into what Nicodemus was experiencing. Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Passover, and he was doing many things. He had turned water into wine. He had cleansed the temple, and we assume he had done other things. And many people began to believe things about Jesus. And they began to have opinions about Jesus. But the text says that whatever they believed, it must not have been a saving faith because Jesus didn't entrust himself to them. He knew what was in the hearts of the men and women who claimed to believe things about him based on what they saw or heard from him. And he didn't entrust himself to them. And then this man comes onto the scene named Nicodemus. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader, a well-thought-of man in his time, highly esteemed, highly honored, a ruler among the Jews. And we had just seen previously in the text that the Jews, the rulers of the Jews and Jesus already were starting not to get along, starting to misunderstand each other. And here comes Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had thoughts about Jesus, 
at some level was interested in Jesus, but was not somebody who had a saving faith in Jesus, on Jesus' terms. We see in the text, in verse 2, that Nicodemus says that um, Jesus is a rabbi. He says, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform these signs you do unless God were with him. And Nicodemus actually believes some true things about Jesus, that he's a teacher, that he is a miracle worker, that he's at some level sent by and ordained by God. Those are all true things that Nicodemus believes. But they're just incomplete things that he believes. The other detail that we see in this text is that Nicodemus isn't just interested in Jesus. He's not just having thoughts about Jesus that are unsaving beliefs in Jesus, but he comes to Jesus at night. I don't know if you caught that detail in verse 2, that this man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus at night. Kind of strange detail, and we're not exactly sure why John includes it. Uh, Some have postulated that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night because he was scared of his colleagues. He was truly interested in who this Jesus was. He knew he was a teacher. He knew he was a miracle worker. He knew he was at some level ordained by God, but maybe he was something more. But he didn't want to admit that to his colleagues, his colleagues who already were skeptical of everyone and everything that wasn't coming from them and their teachings and their authority, and who had just seemingly the day before or days before had this confrontation with Jesus. And maybe he went to Jesus at night because he feared them. He didn't want to be ostracized by them. Or maybe he went to Jesus at night because he feared the crowds. Nicodemus was supposed to be the teacher of Israel. He was supposed to be a ruler of Israel. And if he was going to go to someone to learn from him, that would mean that this guy has more honor, more esteem. And so he went to him at night not wanting to be seen as lower than, not wanting the crowds to see him as less than this Jesus guy who he was interested in at the very least. Uh, We don't know, but probably what John is doing is using this theme of night and darkness that he runs from the very beginning of the book all the way through the end. Uh, Night and darkness represent the things that are not of God. Jesus, in John 1, verses 4 and 5, we see in the epilogue, uh, John 1, 4 and 5 say this, In him, Jesus, was life, and that life was the light of men. The light shined in the darkness, and yet darkness did not overcome it. We see something similar at the end of our passage in John chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. This is the judgment. The light has come into the world. People loved darkness rather than the light because their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and avoids it so that his deeds may not be exposed. Maybe what John's trying to do is say that Nicodemus was coming to Jesus because he believed things about Jesus. He was interested in Jesus, but he was still in darkness. He was still walking in the night. Some people even believe that Nicodemus is supposed to be this character that's opposed to Judas. Judas starts in the light, called by Jesus, decides to follow Jesus, but then goes in the night to betray Jesus. And Nicodemus starts in the night, but then at the end we see that Nicodemus is there helping bury Jesus. Some postulate that he is actually a disciple, a secret disciple of Jesus like Joseph of Arimathea. We don't really know that. All we know is that Nicodemus came to Jesus at night, believing things about Jesus, not having a saving faith in Jesus, 
but curious. Maybe Jesus is more than a teacher. Maybe he's more than a miracle worker. Maybe he's more than just somebody who's been ordained by God. So how does Jesus respond? We see how Nicodemus approaches Jesus with interest, curiosity, not having a saving faith, still in the dark. And how does Jesus respond? See, we, already re- we remember previously that Jesus said he knows what's in the hearts of men. He knows what's in the heart of Nicodemus. And so Jesus goes right after. He reads between the lines. He goes right into the heart of something that Nicodemus was misguided on. Here's what he says, starting in verse 3. Jesus replied, truly I tell you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus replies, how can anyone be born when he is old? Can he enter his mother's womb a second time and be born? Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, unless someone is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Whatever is born of flesh is flesh. Whatever is born of spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed at what I told you, that you must be born again. The wind blows where it pleases, and you hear its sound, and you don't know where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. The first thing that Jesus says to Nicodemus is that everyone, everyone needs rebirth by the spirit. The reason Nicodemus was a little thrown off by this phrase by Jesus, that no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born, reborn. Actually, the text literally means born from above. Nobody can see the kingdom of God, can participate in the kingdom of God, can consider themselves a part of the kingdom of God unless they are reborn. They are renewed. They are regenerated. They are born from above. And Nicodemus is thrown off by this. Not because he didn't have a paradigm for rebirth or renewal or regeneration. No, he did. In their time, there would have been some, maybe not many, we don't know, Gentiles, non-Jews, who eventually came to faith in Jesus or in God. Gentiles who weren't part of the chosen people, who weren't of the ethnic line of Abraham, who heard something about God and began to have faith in God and believed that Yahweh was the one true God. These people would have been considered to be reborn. Renewed, regenerated, proselytes into the Jewish faith, though not sharing the same bloodline. But what throws Nicodemus off is not the idea of rebirth, but who the rebirth is directed toward. You see, what Nicodemus didn't like, what he was bowing his back to, was that Jesus was saying, everyone, even him, even the Jews, needed a rebirth from the Spirit. This would have been very hard for Nicodemus to understand. And for so long, he had had this one idea that he was part of Abraham's line, that he was part of God's chosen people, that he actually had taken upon himself to study the law, to study the scriptures, and to understand them so well that he could teach it to others because he wanted to, I think, probably at his heart, to do right by God. He desired to protect the people. If the people didn't obey the law, if they didn't understand the law, then God would continue to let Rome oppress them. He would continue to let them be sent out into exile. He would continue to let them suffer as he had done many times before to discipline them. What Nicodemus needed in that moment was to hear that everyone, even him, needed a rebirth from the Spirit. And this wasn't supposed to surprise Nicodemus. Uh, 
And we're going to develop this idea in just a moment. But Jesus seems to say, you shouldn't be surprised by this, Nicodemus. You, you teacher of Israel, you should know that the Spirit does seemingly as it pleases. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. You can't see or grab hold of the Spirit. Nonetheless, you can see the effects of the Spirit just like the wind. We don't know where the wind comes from or where it's going. We can't grab hold of it. We can't see it with our eyes, but we can see its effects. Interestingly enough, the word for spirit and wind is the same in the Greek. And actually, John, Jesus, is using it here to have a play on words. The spirit is like the wind. You shouldn't be amazed when I say things like everyone needs a rebirth by the spirit because the spirit does things that we can't fully comprehend. Nonetheless, we can see its effects. So the first thing that Jesus responds to Nicodemus with is that the spirit is something we all need. The second thing that he says is that the son, me, Jesus, is the only authoritative source of truth and life for everyone. Let's read, um, starting in verse 9. Nicodemus responds to the previous things. How can these things be, asked Nicodemus. How is it that the Spirit can move in this way? How is it you can say that everyone, even the Jews, even me, need a rebirth by the Spirit? Verse 10, Jesus seems to rebuke Nicodemus a bit. Aren't you a teacher, or in the Greek, the teacher of Israel? You should know. You should be surprised by this. You should know, Nicodemus. You claim to be a teacher of Israel, and you don't know these things? Of course you don't know. I know you should know. I know that all the scriptures in the Old Testament predicted what's happening now, and you should be able to look around and perceive that the things that are happening were actually predicted in the past. You should know. You're a teacher of Israel. You're the teacher of Israel, but you don't. And actually, I'm not surprised that you missed things like Ezekiel chapter 36, verses 25 through 27. That say this, God says, verse 25, I will also sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. Who's he talking to? Gentiles? Non-Jews? No. Here, Ezekiel is proclaiming the words of God that God plans to sprinkle clean even the Jews. I will cleanse you from all your impurities, all your idols, all your sin. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and carefully observe my ordinances. You should have known. You should have known. It shouldn't surprise you when I say that you need a rebirth because I told you all that you were going to need a rebirth. But it doesn't surprise me, Nicodemus, that you don't understand these things. Why? Truly, I tell you, this is verse 11. We speak what we know and we testify to what we have seen, but you do not accept our testimony. If I have told you about earthly things and you don't believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. In other words, you don't know these things, and I'm not surprised you don't know these things because your heart, your heart is hard. Actually, you claim to be a teacher of Israel, a ruler of Israel, but in fact, I'm the only one who has authority to truly teach. 
I am the one who is the teacher of teachers. I am the word of God. I am the word made flesh. I am the source of truth. Why? Because I'm the only one here who has been in heaven and came down to explain heavenly things on the earth. I'm the one who formed this whole thing. I'm the one who made you in my image. I'm the one who all of this is about. I am the one who has authority to teach on these things. I'm the one who gets to tell you the truth that everyone, even the Jews, yes, even you, Nicodemus, that you need a rebirth by the Spirit. Then in verses 14 and 15, Jesus continues. He's not just the source of truth, but he's also the source of life. Verse 14, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, so that everyone who believes in him may have eternal life. Numbers 21, 4 through 9, a story you may have heard, maybe not. But the Jews were grumbling and complaining against God, not liking how he was doing things. And God sends some snakes to remind them of who he is and try to get them to shape up. And these snakes are biting them. This is not going well for them. And they cry out and ask for God's help. And God, in his compassion, in his grace, in his mercy, says, Moses, put a snake on a pole, lift it up. And as they look to that snake on a pole, they will be saved from their snake bites. Jesus is saying, and what Nicodemus doesn't fully understand, but more and more the disciples and those who decide to put their faith in Jesus will understand later that just as the snake was lifted up and saved those people from their problems in Numbers 21, so too the Son of Man will be lifted up, lifted up on a pole, and so that everyone who looks to him will be saved, will have a renewal of life by the Spirit now, and will have eternal life forever. That is what he is saying. First, the Spirit is something that everyone needs. And the Son is the source of truth and life. Next question I ask is why? And this is what John seeks to answer, starting in verse 16. Why? Why would we need the Spirit? Why would Jesus come and be lifted up and eventually crucified on behalf of the people? Why? John tried to give hint to that in chapter 1, starting in verse 9. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world didn't recognize him. Nicodemus was made in Jesus' image, and yet Nicodemus couldn't recognize Jesus for who he truly was. <clears throat> the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was created through him, and yet the world did not recognize him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, he gave them the right to become children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born not of natural descent or the will of the flesh or the will of man, but of God. This is what Jesus is saying is happening here. He's having this conversation with one person to illustrate something that's happening between God and the world, between light and the darkness, between Jesus and the religious leaders, between Jesus and Nicodemus, between Jesus and us. The fact that the world is opposed to God and that this is what was promised would happen, and that everyone, because we are born in the flesh, and that in this flesh we sin, and that because of that sin we have a spiritual, spiritually dead state, and we face the promise of spiritual death, we have only hope through the one who has life, and that's Jesus. 
that Jesus is the light who can overcome the darkness, that Jesus is the only one who can move us from night to day, that Jesus is the only one, that he is the source of life and truth, that through faith in him as the Son of God, as the Messiah, as the Lamb of God, as the way, the truth, and the life, God in the flesh who dwelt among us, only by faith in him can we experience new life. But the question remains, why? The last thing Jesus says, or what John says, we don't really know. Uh, Some of your Bibles have red letters starting in verse 16, some black. There's some debate whether this is Jesus talking or whether this is John giving um, some exegetical, exegetical thoughts on what Jesus had just said. The truth remains. The authority of the text remains. He gives the why. The why is this, that the Father loves everyone. For God loved the world in this way, that he gave his one and only son, that everyone who believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Anyone who believes in him is not condemned, but anyone who does not believe is already condemned because he has not believed in the name of the one and only son of God. The reason all this comes about is because of God's goodness, and from his goodness comes a never-ending fountain of his love, a love that's not just extended to Abraham, a love that's not just extended to Abraham's family, a love that's not just extended to Nicodemus and his friends who loved the law so much that they created laws around the laws. This was a love that was for the world, this world that had rebelled against their creator, this world that was in darkness and rejected the light, refused to receive Jesus, this world that was an enemy of God is loved by God. Even while we were still enemies, Christ died for us. The reality is we didn't do anything to earn the love of God. We are loved by God because he made us and it is his prerogative to do so. It's not anything that we've done to earn his favor. We haven't been so obedient to the law that he owed us, but actually he did this out of his grace and his mercy, knowing how broken and flawed that we truly are. He did this because he loves us. Now, I asked you earlier how it is you approached Jesus for the first time. I have another question for you. How does this text hit you today? Hearing that, God loves you. This truly is a beautiful text. Martin Luther says that John 3.16 is the heart of the Bible. That it's the gospel in miniature. A.W. Tozer says it pretty well. He says, you can search the libraries in all the world and search through every book of every language under the sun and you will never find any 25-word text that compares to John 3.16. Even if you would collect all the great minds of all the philosophers and thinkers and writers from the beginning of time and put them in one room together, all their combined talents could not produce a text that means so much to the human race, that God loves us so much that he sent his one-of-a-kind, unique, one-and-only son so that we wouldn't perish in our sin that we wouldn't face the death that we deserve, but so that we would have free access to the life that he alone can give. 
He did it because he loves us. I don't know how it hits you, but I can only imagine how it would hit Nicodemus. Everyone? Jesus, everyone. The Samaritans? Those half-breeds? They they couldn't even stay faithful to you during exile. They did like one of the things you clearly said not to do. They intermarried with people who were not of our line. They weren't part of our family. They weren't descendants from Abraham. They started to worship other gods, doing things you said not to do. The Samaritans? Yes, everyone. Well, what about the Romans? These people who are oppressing us, who are killing us, who are trying to keep peace at the end of the sword. These people who commit abominations in your temple. These people that make fun of you, mock you, that kill your people, that seem to have no care that you exist or that you have an opinion about them and that your coming wrath is upon them. They don't seem to care. Even the Romans? Yeah, even the Romans. What about the tax collectors, Jesus? Yeah, them too. Lepers, the sick, the dying? Yeah. What about the Sabbath breakers? Yeah, the Sabbath breakers too. What about those who are far off from you, Lord? Those who have never heard about you, Lord? Yes, even them. I love them too. I can't imagine how shocking that would have been. To know that for so long you'd suffered so much and you've committed your entire life to preserving the law of God because God, you said, we have to obey this law. If we do, it'll go well for us. If we don't, it won't go well for us. And so we want to protect this law because we want to glorify you and we do want things to go well for us. You chose us, God. Was all of this for nothing? Did you call us for nothing? Were we unique for nothing? No, but it wasn't about you. Even from the very beginning when I called your father Abraham, it was to bless him so that he would be a blessing. I was going to bless Abraham. I had chosen his family to show myself to the world so that the whole world might come to me. I gave him Isaac so that through Isaac would come one to all, which all people could look to for salvation. It was never really about you. This was the plan all along, that I would send one who would crush the head of the snake, that I would show my great love for all people because all people have been made in my image and all people are dying because of their sin and I desire for all people to come to a knowledge of the truth. I don't desire the death of the wicked, but that they may repent and live. It was hard for them to hear that God loves everyone. How does it hit you? I can tell you how it hit me. And an unexpected demon from my past began to appear this week. As I studied this text, this text that I love, this text that I've actually never preached, I began to feel this significant burden. Not because of the weight of this text, though this text is very weighty. Not because it's too complicated for us to understand. No, John communicated it in such a way and the Spirit inspired it in such a way that we could understand it. This text was difficult for me because sometimes I have a hard time hearing that God loves me. I know. I know God loves us. I know God loves the world, but me? I know myself. I know how messed up I am. I know how broken I am. I know how much of a failure I am. And sometimes I think that God, maybe he loves a better version of me, but he just doesn't actually love me. 
I felt uh, fairly seen when a writer explained it like this. You say, I know me, and I know God knows me. I messed up too many times before. I've seen the right thing to do and chosen to do the opposite. I'm a screw-up. I'm still a mess. I don't know you, of course, but it would not make any difference. It's still true. God is concerned about you. You say, sure, concerned about the human race, but not me. No, he's concerned about you. Concerned about my family? No, concerned about you as well as your family. You say, I've sinned, I've lied, I've failed, I've made vows that I've broken, I've made promises and failed to keep them. I'm no good. All I can say to you is that if you persist in your gloomy unbelief, then there is nothing that even God can do for you. Because it is this unbelief that tells you at the same time that your heart is swollen with pride and that at another, your heart says, there is no use in me and I am no good. God Almighty went to all the trouble to say that you are. Not that you are good morally, but that you are some good to him because God is going to make you over. He has proven that he cares for you by sending his only son, that whoever believes in him shouldn't perish but have eternal life. No matter how bad or how far away from God you are or how often you've failed him or how many times you've lied to him, how terrible you've been, how terrible you've been no matter how good you feel you are, I have a word for you. You matter to God. God is concerned about you enough to give you a new birth from above. Those that have known you, know your dirty temper, know your impossible disposition, know your past and have no faith in you, they cannot keep you out. Your doubts cannot keep you out. Your fears cannot keep you out. For they do not have the keys to death and Hades. Because there is only one to whom you matter so much that he gave his one and only son. The only question that remains today is how will we respond to this truth that God loves everyone, that he loves me, that he loves you. He doesn't just love the world generically, but he knows you, he sees you, and he loves you. Some of you sit here with a saving faith, understanding Jesus and believing in Jesus on his terms, and you still struggle with the idea that God loves you, that he maybe would love a better version of you, but not you where you sit today. I'm here to tell you, to tell myself that God loves you. Maybe that's what you need to be hearing today and believing today. I'm here to say that maybe the Spirit's gonna move in a mysterious way today. Maybe God's going to lead you and call you and to remind you that he's placed you in your place, in your home, in your job, and this time to tell somebody else about how much God loves them. Actually, God designed things not just so that we would benefit from the great goodness of his kindness, of his great sacrifice, but so that we would actually be ministers of the gospel to others. That we wouldn't keep the love of God for ourselves, but it would flow freely from us just as it flows freely from God. That we are simply vessels holding with us this treasure that we want to share with the world. Maybe there's somebody that God's put in your life that you need to minister to. That you need to be the hands and feet of Jesus to. That you need to be the mouth of Jesus to. I have no doubt that some of you sit here today still unsure where you stand with Jesus. You have thoughts about him. 
opinions about him. Maybe even you believe some true things about him, but you haven't put your faith in him on his terms. Maybe the Spirit is blowing in such a way that we'll be able to see someday, maybe today, maybe 10 years in the future, I don't know, that he's working in you, that he loves you, that he wants you to put your faith in Jesus on Jesus' terms as the only source for salvation and renewal. Maybe he's calling you today to live in light of the love that he has for you. But for those of us who are in Christ, for those of us who have put our faith in him, who have been washed by the blood, we get to do every week this beautiful thing called communion, the Eucharist. We come together around this proverbial table and we take a piece of bread and we drink from a cup and we remember these things. We remember the truths of who Jesus is on Jesus' terms. We remember the body that he assumed, the flesh that he put on, that he willingly put up onto a tree so that we would look to him and be saved. We remember that blood that flowed from him that is meant to wash over us and to make us pure. We, brothers and sisters, celebrate. We remember, we give thanks every single week doing this thing. Those of you who are not in Christ, look at this. Look at that cross and ask yourself, what is keeping you from putting your faith in Jesus? But brothers and sisters, those of you who are in Christ, we break the bread and we eat the bread giving thanks to Jesus. And we take the cup, remembering his blood. Let's pray. Lord God, King of the universe, we thank you that you love us. Help us to believe it. Help us to know it, to trust it. God, for anyone in here that's doubting it, those doubts be pushed away. Lord, may your spirit blow through this room so that we may see its effects. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Stand as we sing in response to that good word.